Morning. Let's start with a poem. The river is famous to the fish, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds, watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while, while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous, or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. Uh, I think this poem is impactful for a number of reasons. One is it, the reframing of what it means to be famous and what fame is. I especially love this last verse. Let's put it up there. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. Uh, another thing I think it gets at is this idea and something that we all want, but in reality find really, really hard to do, and that is the challenge to be ourselves. Um, you may have heard this quote before. Uh, many people attribute it to themselves, but ironically, it's, uh, I think, from Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. We know uh, that this is true. We know that being yourself is the best way through life, and we know that people are unique, like pretty little snowflakes floating through the existence so why is it so hard to be yourself? Well, I think for starters, it's way more nuanced than just be yourself. Be yourself. It's easy. Look, I'm doing it. Be, just, just, come on. Just be yourself. I think in order to be yourself, you need to know yourself, which is complicated for many reasons. And if we're honest, we're not all sure who we are to begin with and struggle with doubts, insecurities, family of origin issues, past trauma, pain. All this makes knowing and being yourself really difficult. And it's hard coming to grips with personal limits um, of time, strength, personality, etc. But I think it's important to be reminded of and to not give up the important and hard, good work of discovering our, as uh, Thomas Merton says, our true selves and resisting the false self. Merton was famous for saying, if I find him, I will find myself. If I find my true self, I will find him. Um, this picture here on the screen is uh, really personal to me and uh, beautiful to me, but more probably personal to the, the one who is hidden uh, in the, the monks of this uh, group of men. And there's a 13-year-old boy. His name is Elijah Odegaard. And recently, Lance, our lead pastor, had organized this weekend uh, for him 
kind of a rite of passage into his journey into manhood. And in that, invited a group of friends, family to come and surround him, affirm him. And it was just so beautiful. I just wish when I was 13, I got to do something like this, especially in a culture where there's very few rituals like this that exist. So super, super beautiful, super meaningful time. Uh, a lot of grown men crying and just weeping and enjoying one another and Paul Stapleton grabbing flowers and just being so amazed that they even exist. Um, it, was, it was an awesome weekend. I asked Elijah and Lance if I could share this their way. And Lance, if you don't know, if you haven't already known, he's on sabbatical. So I hope if, I'm not the first person telling you that. Um, but it made me think, what would I tell my teenage self? What would I tell my 13-year-old little Scotty self? It would probably be a message or a version of this message of being yourself. And so today, uh, I want to and uh, just humbly submit to you a bit of an autobiographical sermon. Uh, we're not currently in a series, so I just had the opportunity to kind of listen and ask God, what, do you, what would you have to say? And so I felt led to share a bit of what I've been learning, and I hope that it is helpful for you. And uh, with that, can we just bow and pause and pray? Thank you, God, that you're real, that you're with us, that you're for us. Thank you that this is a safe place to ask big questions and even receive some answers. I pray, God, by your spirit, by your grace, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us through my feeble attempts of telling my story and some things that I've learned along the way. So, God, just ask for grace. Ask for your spirit to guide and to fill in the blanks and to smooth over the rough edges. Amen. Uh, so in order to do this, I want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I uh, would love for you to turn in your chair Bibles. These were a gift to us, uh, so we didn't have a choice of what they look like, but here they are. Uh, these are our chair Bibles that we use, and um, 1 Samuel is found on the 197th page, 1 Samuel 17. And uh, if you ha haven't already noticed or if you're familiar with that chapter, we're going to look at the story of David and uh, Goliath. And I don't want to assume everyone knows this story. Uh, one time I was preaching at a church in Japan and with the translator had this whole sermon planned and in it said, you know the story of David and Goliath and the translator translated it and the people all collectively nodded their heads, no. No, we do not know the story. And so the sermon changed, and I told the story of David's life. Anyways, assuming there's some knowledge of this story, what it means, there's so many different depictions of it. This picture here is a book that I grew up with. I grew up in a Christian home and uh, grew up in the church, and so things like this lying around the home were not uncommon. It's a little golden book, and I don't know if you're familiar with the binding, but it uh, conjures up really good memories for me. Uh, this is the image, though, I had. If you go back one there, 
This is the image I had of David and Goliath. Uh, so I just kind of pictured the scene like this. So beautiful meadow, colorful skirt, a flimsy spear. And uh, yeah, maybe you have an image like this. It's funny how things like this stick with you throughout your life. But this is, for better or for worse, the image I've had. But there's many different images, and I'll show you a few of them that I dug up here. But the, the uh, story of David and Goliath is a popular one, and there's been many depictions in art. Uh, we can go to the next slides. And 1 Samuel 17 is famous for this battle scene. Um, but I'm not so interested in the battle scene per se, but more in the parts leading up to this. So just before this famous battle scene, 1 Samuel 17, we read that David was sent to the battlefield to bring supplies for his brothers and to bring gifts for the commanding officers. I'm told in some translations that it was gifts of bread, and cheeses. Some translations even say 10 cheeses. I think that's a big deal. It is in today's time. Back then, it probably was even more of a big deal. 10 cheeses? Thank you. And uh, David comes as a delivery boy, but is curious about what's happening around here. He overhears that there's this giant warrior person basically challenging someone to fight him. Here's a description of Goliath. Follow along in 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. That translates to nearly ten feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat, scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 126 pounds of armor different from my colorful skirted Goliath that I saw in, my, saw in my childhood. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, approximately the size of a fence rail. And its iron point, just the point on the spear, weighed 600 shekels, which is just over 15 pounds, just the point on the spear. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So here's this giant warrior taunting the Israelite army, saying, basically, here's a deal. Come out and fight me. If one of your soldiers comes out and fights me and wins, you get to have all of our army as slaves forever. If you lose, we get to have your army as slaves. It's a pretty big battle. And he'd been doing this for 40 days straight. And David comes into this scene, and we read in verse 28... Uh, his brothers were not too fond of him visiting. So younger brother, uh, he's the youngest of eight sons. And his older brother, in verse 28 of chapter 17, we read, When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And at first, it seems like out of the blue. Why is he freaking out his little brother? But whatever tension there is here, it's not new. This is quite deep and uh, 
and old. If we turn, just you don't even have to turn the page, but just look to the left on the other page, 196, in 1 Samuel 16, we read a little bit about these years before David comes to this battle scene. So in this, in this other scene, again, years before David and Goliath's scene, Samuel, who is a famous judge and a prophet, comes to David's town because God has told him he's going to find and anoint the next king of Israel. Everything all right? Oh. Can you hear me okay? Yeah? Sorry. Is that, is that better? Clearer? Okay. Should I start again? For the <laughs> so, second scene, years before David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 16, Samuel, a famous judge and prophet, comes to David's town. God's told him to Samuel, you're going to find the next king and anoint him here. And Samuel's a pretty big deal, so when he comes to the town, um, it, it's a bit of a scene, and I imagine the village elders are a bit nervous, like, what have we done wrong? You have a prophet coming to your town. Later they find, oh, it's a good thing he's looking for and wanting to anoint the next king of Israel. And David's dad, Jesse, and his sons, there was eight of them, were invited to worship with Samuel, basically, and at the end of this worship service... Samuel, the prophet, under God's prompting, asks the sons to pass before him. And God says, as you do this, I will tell you who's going to be the future king. Seems simple enough. So after the first son passes, Eliab, the same one from the battle scene that was angry at David, it says this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. First, you can see why Eliab might be a little bit ticked off. He's the first son. He's the rightful heir to whatever throne there would be. Passes before Samuel. Samuel gets a different vibe from the Holy Spirit saying, this isn't the one. So there, there's that tension there at the, at the battle scene. Then also, I think this is worth noting, is that God is perfectly comfortable with going for the unlikely, the perceived weak or poor, and the misfits. In fact, I think he prefers it. In the message translation, it says this, that God judges persons differently than humans do. Men and women look at the face, God looks at the heart. So ask yourself this morning, whose judgment matters to you more? People's judgment of you or God's judgment of you? So back to the story. Samuel sees these seven sons of Jesse, and Samuel asks, uh, is there another one? Because I've seen all seven, and I'm not, I'm not getting anything from the Lord. There's no... There's no aha, like, yeah, this is the one. And, uh, and I think this is actually kind of funny, that David wasn't even there. He wasn't even in the scene. And I, I can kind of relate as a parent of three. Like, the first child, we spend a lot of time, like, really, like, developing and, like, both hands on, both parents on. The second, it was, like, one-on-one. -on -one. 
We like, we're, Maisie was there, and we're like, yeah, you're great and everything, but we're kind of busy. And then Leo is the third. He's kind of, it's kind of like, just figure it out, buddy. I don't, I don't have time. And so I can't imagine what it would be like it with eight sons. Eight sons. Could you imagine that, Paul? Eight, eight sons. Uh, so he's not even there. They're, I'm sure Jesse's like, David, 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 where? Oh, go get David. Where is he? He's probably out with the sheep. So it says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, 13, So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features, it says. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So take all this and come back to the battle scene. David is still the youngest brother, going to see his brothers on the battlefield. There's a lot of resentment there that's probably been brewing for years. And maybe just for a minute, we could put ourselves in Eliab's um, shoes. What would it be like to be that older brother and have this young punk brother come up to the battlefield? And it made me think of this question. Can we celebrate? Uh, I think it's up there. Oh, it's disappeared. Can we celebrate the success of others? The truth is that we are all equal, sort of. We're all equal, sort of. Um, All humans are made in the image of God, Genesis 1. Yes, we believe that. Yes, we are all equal in value, but, and maybe we don't like to talk about this too much, we are not equal in talent or gifting. Uh, The reality of life is that some people are just better at stuff, smarter, quicker, stronger, more charismatic, more fill-in-the-blank. Maybe the Christian way of saying it is this. We have been given different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. That sounds nice. We all have grace, but apparently some people have a little bit more. And there's a story that Jesus tells, the parable of the talents. Uh, And in this story, he's telling the disciples, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And uh, some of you in this room are five bag people. And to that, I want to say congratulations. Most of us are one bag people. Uh, Or if you're lucky, maybe two. And that's okay. But if we're honest, it's hard. Sometimes when we see others succeed, it can fuel insecurity. So often we start with unrealistic expectations for who we will become and how long it will take to get there. And I think we're conditioned to believe that we're capable of doing anything. I mean, that's what we were told growing up. Parents and relatives have told us. You've heard the famous Dr. Seuss poem, You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. And sometimes we forget this other part. Except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. Oh, the places you will go. (laughs) Truth, 
truth from Dr. Seuss, and we see others, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, we see others who are crazy successful, usually the 0.001% of the world, they've got money or talent or an image, and that image is blasted everywhere for us to see because our culture idolizes this type of success. And as a result, maybe consciously or unconsciously, we compensate by putting our best foot forward, trying to make our lives seem better than they actually are. Social media is a perfect example. Just the picture of the perfect date or the perfect meal or the perfect whatever. And there's often this universal tendency to want to be someone else, someone more important, talented, skinny, more blank, fill in the blank. Um, and then we fall into the trap of comparison, which can lead to insecurity, jealousy, disappointment, resentment, uh, and even sadness. Um, the hard transition, but what I want to do is take three things out, three things that I've learned from the story of David. Uh, one is that he knew his identity, two is that he knew his calling, and three, that he knew his limits. So first, David knew his identity. If we jump back into the story, David anointed as future king over all Israel. So he's at the battlefield bringing food and supplies, bringing his ten cheeses, to his older brothers and to his superiors. And he overhears Goliath's challenge. They've been doing it for 40 days. They've been doing this song and dance. David says, I'm in. I'll do it. And as you can guess, the response is kind of like, what? No. And this is what it says. I'm reading in the message. I just like the way Eugene Peterson writes the narrative here. But in chapter 7, verse 33... Saul answered, and this isn't on the screen, but you can listen. Saul answered David, you can't go and fight this Philistine. You're too young and inexperienced, and he's been at this fighting business since before you were born. David said, I'm, I've been a shepherd tending sheep for my father. Whenever a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I'd go after it, knock it down, and rescue the lamb. If it turned on me, I'd grab it by the throat, wring its neck, and kill it. Lion or bear, it made no difference. I killed it. And I'll do the same to this Philistine pig who is taunting the troops of God alive. Side note, I just love David's smack talk here. This Philistine pig who is taunting the troops of God alive. God, who, who does David think he is? God, who delivered me from the teeth of the lion and the claws of the bear, will deliver me from this Philistine. Saul said, go and God help you. Then, then, this is my favorite part of the whole story, and the part that has probably ministered to me personally the most is that it says in verse 38, then Saul outfitted David as a soldier in armor. He put his bronze helmet on his head and belted his sword on him over the armor. David tried to walk, but he could hardly budge. David told Saul, I can't, I can't even move with all this stuff on me. I'm not used to this. And he took it all off. Just that phrase, 
and he took it all off. David is able to differentiate himself, assert himself, and say, I can't do it this way, and I'm not going to do it this way. This is not me. This is not how God has wired me. This is not me being my fullest self. I'm not doing it. And he took it all off. He took it all off. There's a short Hasidic tale that goes like this. Rabbi Zusa, when he was an old man, said, In the coming world, they will not ask me, Why were you not Moses? They will ask me, Why were you not Zusa? When you and I stand before God, he's not going to say, Why were you not more like him or her? He's going to say, Why were you not like yourself? Why were you not the person I made you to be? And we can waste so much time and energy, even money, trying to be someone you're not. Uh, But I think the good, maybe uncomfortable news is that he sees you. He sees you, and he's looking at your heart. The outside to him, I think, is a bit of a facade to who the real person is. And ultimately, it's his opinion that matters most. I learned this and am learning this in in a very difficult and painful way. And I want to share a bit of the story, and some of you are familiar with this, but me and my family coming to Vancouver and ultimately coming here to Artisan. Um, So 2002, I'm uh, 23 years old, and I feel a still small voice uh, what I interpreted to be God's calling in my life. And I, I explain it like a switch. And the switch would, was labeled Vancouver and church planting. And for whatever reason, in 2002, he flipped it on. And I couldn't ignore it. So I'm living at Langley in the time. I'm attending university. And later that year, I meet my wife, Aubin. I begin to share my dream with her, kind of test out the waters, like... This is where I'm headed. Like, does that sound interesting to you? Actually, I remember a very early conversation, kind of me testing the waters a bit and kind of asking her, like, what are your, just casually, what are your dreams for the future? (laughs) And I'm just, like, hoping they kind of align. And she's like, oh, I just love the idea of, like, moving to a remote village in Mexico and working at an orphanage or something. Like, oh, shoot. But later, and just after getting to know one another, knowing one another, we, the, the vision lined up, and we we're on the same page. We're moving to Vancouver. A long, 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 long story short, 10 years later, to the day, pretty much, to the month, we were moving into Vancouver. We were starting a church. God had called us to do this for 10 years. We'd be dreaming and thinking about it. Move into the city. A lot of good and exciting things happening. And also, at the same time, some, like, severe anxiety and, like, crippling doubt and insecurity was growing inside of me. And I think what it was was the temptation to be someone I'm not. And I had, for some reason, this idea of what a pastor should be like uh, and the books the pastor should read and how they should lead. And I certainly didn't fit that. I felt a little too gentle or musical, or I don't know. 
There was even a time in that period where I, I gave up music and was like, it's time to be a pastor now. Music is kind of like, that's, that's, that was fun and nice, but now I'm entering my calling. This is serious, Scott, grow up. And it was a really sad, dark, depressing time for me. First of all, for those of you that know me well, music is so life-giving to me. I could never give that, never give that up. It's so silly. But I did things like that because I was tempted to believe that I needed to be someone that I wasn't. And unlike David, I kept the armor on. The armor was presented to me. It sounded like a good option. I wasn't going to go into battle as myself because certainly wouldn't do well. So I chose to wear the armor. But over a course of time, I learned that I could hardly budge. I couldn't even move with all the stuff that was placed on me. And ultimately, just things kind of fell apart. The church that we were dreaming about, that, those dreams kind of died, fell apart. And I allowed people and things to put unrealistic expectations on me. I wish, like going back in time, I wish that I had the courage, like David, to take off the armor. And now, it's five years later, and I'm still removing armor. Um, it's hard, vulnerable work, peeling away the armor layer by layer, and I'm finally getting back to my original clothing. But I'm always tempted to pick it back up and put it on so people will like me or respect me or think I'm spectacular, not like a buttonhole. And I'm learning that's not worth it. I'm learning to say things like this, the, the beginning of a poem by May Sarton. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces. Second thing I think we can draw from the story of David is that David knew his calling. Another Another word for calling, and maybe you've heard of this, is vocation. Uh, and answering that question of what is God calling you to do is a really difficult one, one that takes time, energy, prayer, takes uh, the counsel of good people around you. It's not something I think that you kind of decide. Maybe it's a mixture of that and also discovering and excavating through affirmation from people who care for you, understanding of who you are. Parker Palmer talks a lot about this in his book, Let Your Life Speak. Parker Palmer says this about vocation. Vocation at its deepest level is, this is something I cannot do for reasons I'm unable to explain to anyone else and don't fully understand myself, but that are nonetheless compelling. And uh, you may fail, and you may make mistakes doing this or figuring this out, but uh, it's worth the hard work. A third thing, and I could say so much on all these things, but just really want to get to this part here, is that David knew his limits. Uh, this is another, another old tale, but I think worth the time. Uh, this is an old tale told in India uh, about a king who is getting old and close to retiring, or whatever you call it when you are not a king anymore. 
but there was a problem. He didn't have an heir to the throne. So instead of just kind of handing it over to anyone or ceasing to be the king, he assembled, this was his bright idea, he assembled 500 of the kingdom's young men in order to pick a successor. And this is quite fascinating. He gave each of the young men a seed and asked that they tend to it for one year. After a year, he would examine each one's results and determine through what he saw who would be king. So one of the young men, the story goes, took his seed home, planted it, fertilized it, watered, and tended to it daily and nightly. Despite these efforts, nothing grew. At the end of the year, the young man told his father that he was too embarrassed to present his empty pot to the king. His father persuaded him that he had worked hard and done his very best. So he should not feel ashamed. He must present himself to the king honestly, no better or worse. So therefore, the young man did go into the city on the day he was to present himself to the king. The boy took his place with his empty pot, along with other young men, all of whom had pots with banana plants already bearing fruit, mango trees, clusters of beautiful flowers. And the king walked through them and began his inspection of the outcomes from all 500 young men. As he walked past the only boy with an empty pot, the king hesitated as he looked, and then he continued examining the others. Soon the king returned to the boy with the empty pot and said, you will be the next king. What? Why? asked the young man. Why should I be king when I was not able to have anything? The king responded, before I handed out the seeds, I boiled them so no one could grow. You alone have presented yourself in honesty. You will be the next king. And I think what the story is getting at is this challenge to be our true self, to present our true self, not an act, because the king rewards honesty and exalts the humble. And often we see our limits, our limitations of our personality, our character as a bad thing. But I think uh, instead of seeing them as a, a limit to see, or to see them as a negative, to see them as a gift, maybe instead of an, a liability. Culturally, I don't think we really like limits. We try to break them, even use legal or illegal substances to help us break them. And we fantasize about having no bounds and no limits. I think of this movie in 2011 with Bradley Cooper called Limitless. I mean, if I'm honest, I watched it and was like, yeah, sign me up. Get me the pills. But what if we saw our limits as a good thing? And what if knowing our limitations was helpful instead of crippling? Or as Parker Palmer again says, uh, what we're doing when we're understanding our limitations, we're understanding the material we're working with. Understanding the material we're working with. Um, three or four years ago, we walked through this book by Pete Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. How many of you remember that, that were around? A couple? So good. I highly recommend the book. 
we basically took it as a teaching series and did sermons on it. And out of his book, he even talks about this very idea, learning to discern your limitations. And in it, he talks about five things. So I want to leave them with you. We're wrapping up here. I know it's getting late here, but um, five things that he said are helpful in discerning your limitations. Uh, he talks about personality is the first thing. And there's so many resources available for us if we do this, from the Enneagram to uh, Myers-Briggs, um, you know, you name it. Uh, Berkman, uh, 16PF, whatever the thing is. And let's not forget, oh yeah, the spiritual gifts in the Bible. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Ephesians 4. And he talks about that certain personalities are better at certain jobs. That's helpful. Uh, for example, I realized I, after going to grad school, graduating with a degree in theology, realized I'm not an academic. I, I'm comfortable in the academic world, but I don't live there, and I don't, I don't love it like I've seen other people love it. I'm more people-oriented. That's one thing I've learned. Uh, another, another limit is your season of life. Uh, your situation, your season of life is a limit. Ecclesiastes even says there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to be silent, and a time to speak. Uh, if you're married, that's a season of life that has limitations. Uh, adding kids to that kind of cuts time in half or more, depending how you look at it. Parenting, if your parent has seasons, small children require us to be at home more often. Small children become teenagers. They leave home. Uh, health issues with children. Their singleness is a different kind of limit. Uh, there's limitations of finance, of health, of school, or study, or grief, or loss. Season of life is a limit. Uh, limitation is capacity. Pete Scazzaro says, some people have big plates and some have small, and it's okay. Physically, emotionally, uh, intellectually, bigger or smaller plates. Uh, some of us, it's harder, but saying no can be such a good thing. Uh, difficult emotions. Again, Pete Scazzaro says, anger, depression, and rage, for example, often function as oil lights in our lives, informing us that something is not right on the inside of the engine of our lives. Often, those difficult emotions can be ways that God stops us and gets our attention. Again, lots can be said on these. I'm just kind of touching the surface, but things that are limits. The last one is scars and wounds from family past. And these are real, uh, can be real emotional and physical repercussions from our family of origin. The point in all of this is, oh, and you can go to the last one there. There we go. Uh, the point in all of this is that, uh, <laughs> thanks, you're working out some bugs on the fly there. I appreciate that. Uh, the point in all this is to know our limitations as part of knowing our true self. And also knowing our limitations, but growing through those limitations. So at the same time, and there should be another one there. At the same time, we must regular ask, regularly ask ourselves, are there limits that God is asking me to break through 
because they're a result of my character flaws. And there's numerous of examples of uh, watching God work through our limitations. Um, I could list a ton of them, but Sarah was 90, uh, and Abraham as a good, uh, as basically as good as dead, yet God made them a mother and father to the nations. Elijah, uh, Elijah and Jeremiah were prone to bouts of depression, yet were mightily used by God. Moses was 80 years old when God sent him on a task that required physical and emotional stamina for a 40-year-old. Uh, Timothy, apparently fearful and shy, was called upon by God. There's many, many examples of God working through our limitations. So just because there are limits there doesn't mean that's the end. In closing, and I'm going to wrap it up here, there's so much to consider here and so much that I've learned and considered that it's hard to pass on in a morning. Um, but considering what da David's story and what it means for us to take off Saul's armor, the ongoing work of understanding our identity, calling, and limits, and back to this quote by Thomas Merton, if I find him, I will find myself. If I find my true self, I will find him. I think what this is about and what I'm learning is about is having a relationship with a living God who is real and with us and for us. And in that relationship, we discover more of our true self. I'm going to close with one passage and some questions for reflection. The passage is Romans 12. So since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelous functioning parts in Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without viciously, enviously, or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. And a few questions just as we close here for reflection. First one is, what pieces of armor have I been tempted to put on? What is God calling me to take off? What is he replacing it with or affirming in me? I've done a lot of work in this in spiritual direction. Part of the, the process of naming those things and thinking of myself actually taking them off and then putting on, renaming those things that God sees as good in me. Uh, second question, does the way in which I'm living my life right now fit with my God-given nature or my true self? Third question, am I being faithful to my God-given talents and my unique, unique story? And last one, am I being honest with who I am, my strengths, weaknesses, my limits? I want to invite us to come to the table with these questions and hold these questions this morning. To bring them all to the table, um, we worship a good God who is welcoming and accepting of all. And I want to encourage you to humbly come to this table again. And let's remind ourselves why we do this. We'll say the, the table litany together. The gospel is the good news that God, our Father, the Creator, out of his great love,